Let us pray. Father in heaven, thank you for being so gracious to us and giving Jesus your son to die. May he be uplifted and exalted as we look at these parables that he gave to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're going to look at three parables in the, chapter, in the fourth chapter of the Gospel of Mark. I consider them to be Jesus' treatise on evangelism. It is here that he tells us specifically how his kingdom grows. By the way, Brother David, when should we close this session? Just a hair before five. Okay, just a hair before five which means we are really going to have to move because I have a lot of material to share with you. So let's move right along here. Woo. Uh, let's see, is this thing? There we go. Okay, now we're ready to go. Why did Jesus use parables? Why did he choose the method of telling stories as a means of illustrating how his kingdom grows? First of all, parables were told are earthly stories with a heavenly meaning. And so as Jesus was telling the parables, oftentimes the people who were sitting in the, you know, in the audience could see the actually the illustration being acted out in front of them, lived out in front of them. In the case of the sower, the servant of God says that they actually were able to see people doing what Jesus was talking about. And he told them parables because um, they provided familiar scenes with objects that were easily remembered. And every time they would see these things reenacted, they would think about the teachings of Jesus. That's why he used parables. And the point of the parables is very interesting. The servant of God says it was to clarify the nature of his kingdom. Notice what she says. They expected the Messiah to prove his claims by mighty deeds of conquest, to establish his empire on the ruins of earthly kingdoms. This expectation Christ answered in the parable of the sower. She continues by saying, not by force of arms, not by violent interpositions was the kingdom of God to prevail, but by the implantation of a new principle in the hearts of men. You see, that is God's work. It is the kingdom growth takes place in men's hearts as a divine work of the Spirit of God. Okay? 
Um, the Bible also illustrates it. The Old Testament prophet Isaiah talked about the kingdom developing like a tender plant and a sprouting root. You remember that passage? In other words, the kingdom wasn't to come as a result of man's inventions and his methods. It wasn't to come as they had expected. It was to appear like a tender plant growing out of the ground. That suggests the miraculous nature of the growth of God's kingdom. That's why he says in the following parable that the farmer casts in the seed and he goes to bed at night, he gets up by day, and the seed grows. He doesn't know how. <laughs> that's, that's God's realm, his miraculous realm. So the kingdom was to come silently, unobtrusively, like a tender sprout, little shoot coming up through the ground and then growing to maturity. The second illustration he uses here of the, of the sprouting root is even more astounding because he says he's like a, a root that sprouts out of the, out of dry ground. All of us know that a root that is in the ground that is going to sprout has to have some moisture. But this root sprouts and comes out of the ground from dry soil. Again, another illustration of the miraculous nature of the growth of God's kingdom. It is beyond our realm. It is beyond our ability to manage it or to conceive it. We have our role to play. We'll talk about that a little later. But God's role is the miraculous working, the creative power that he exercises in the hearts of men. Okay? Who do you suppose the dry ground was? That was Israel. He came up at a very low place in their history. They were in deep apostasy at the time that Jesus was born. But this, this route, this dry ground, from this dry ground, this root was to sprout and grow. Again, you see, illustrating the miraculous nature of it. Notice what the servant of God says. <clears throat> Lift him up in that, in that uh, morning devotional book, page 66. His works. Whose works? God's. As seen in the natural world are not one half comprehended or appreciated. These silent preachers, the growing plants, sprouting root. These silent preachers will teach human beings their lessons if they will only be attentive hearers. She goes on to explain, I'm sorry, this comes from Isaiah, we'll come to her statement in a moment. For as the earth, that is the natural realm, bringeth forth her bud, and the garden causes the things that are sown in it to spring forth, 
so the Lord will cause righteousness and praise, that's the spiritual realm, to spring forth before all nations. Okay? So we have complementary laws in operation when it comes to the kingdom of God. We have the natural world, his works, illustrating how his kingdom is to grow. And when we become aware of that, we will be more effective in our, in our work. Here it is, Christ's Object Lessons, page 33. He who gave the parable of the tiny seed is the sovereign of heaven, and the same laws that govern earthly seed, say, uh, seed sowing, govern the sowing of seeds of truth. So your spirit of prophecy simply complements, supports what the Word of God says. Okay. Okay. From the natural seed, Christ desires to lead our minds to the gospel seed. Christ's Object Lessons, page 33. Okay, let's see here. There we go. Here we go to the parables now. The first parable. Listen, Jesus said. Behold a sower, that is Christ, went out to sow. And it happened as he sowed that some seed fell by the wayside. And the birds of the air came and devoured it. We must understand that most of the gardens in those days were outside of the cities. They were communal gardens in which people who lived in the city kept a little section to themselves, and between these sections was a little pathway so people could find their way to their section, okay? And as they walked back and forth to their section, their feet compacted the earth. And it got hard. And Jesus said, some of the seed fell on there, but it couldn't take root because it couldn't penetrate the soil. And so the birds came along, who he later explained was the enemy, and uh, picked up the seed and ate it. Um, may I liken this section, apply this section to the church that is hardened? in a traditional rut. <laughs> These are churches that say, well, we've never done it that way before. Can't possibly work. Don't think about that. It's too far out to think about. If you're in a church that's in a traditional rut, your chances of growing are because you're not keeping up with the society around you. Now again, remember what I said this, this seminar is not. <laughs> this is not a seminar about compromising our faith. It's not about lowering our standards. But it is about um, lingering, mingling with the people around us and listening to them so that we can hear their heart cry and therefore we can tailor ministries to reach those needs. Those needs do not, do not determine the way we minister. They do not take control of our ministry, but they give us something to focus on so that we can reach specific needs that are in our community. 
And tomorrow morning, tomorrow morning is going to be exciting. You're not going to have a lot of questions today, but tomorrow morning I expect a lot of questions because we're going to talk about how you translate these principles into practical, simple ways to bridge to the people in your community. And uh, I'll be giving you a sheet to those who are uh, certain that they won't be here tomorrow morning. I'll send you home with a sheet with maybe 50 or more ideas of things you can chew on and, and, uh, and, and, uh, and think about creating in your community. Uh, some of them I've been involved in and some of them I haven't. Some of them are still challenges and things that I hope to get to one of these days. I'll talk about some of those tomorrow. But uh, you will find tomorrow morning's session is going to be um, really interesting. So in the church, the wayside represents, I'd like to suggest to you, the church that <clears throat> is stuck in a traditional rut, not open to new means of ministry. <clears throat> Some fell on stony ground where it did not have much earth and immediately sprang up, verse 6, but when the sun was up, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. Let me suggest to you that this represents the cold and indifferent church. This is a church where the, the, the cold rock is just below the surface of the, of the earth. And this is not open to new people. They tend to screen people out. They, they ignore the, the uh, person who is seeking for truth. And oftentimes those people get discouraged and they leave. Uh, you've got to recognize that when you have a guest, when you have a guest coming into your church for the first time, you've got three to five minutes to convince them that they need to come back. <laughs> and if that first impression is not a good one, uh, the likelihood of them returning is not, not very good. Um, that's why I always considered those who are greeting at the doors to be some of the most important people in church on Sabbath morning. By the time I get there, I'm the last to come on the scene. The head elder, he's one of the last to come on the scene. But the first people that they meet are the ones at the door. And even better, if you have a greeter in the parking lot that can greet them as they come in. Do you have any idea how many people drive into your parking lot on Sabbath morning and then get cold feet and drive away? That's why you need a greeter in the parking lot. Catches them before they decide to leave. Hands them a bulletin, greets them, it's raining, provides an umbrella. Hopefully you've got a canopy that they can drive under. But if you don't, that greeter can save, save you, simply by being there. I'll talk tomorrow morning about how this happens in some of these bridging events, how people may come into your parking lot five or six times, and every time they, they've told me they came there, they got cold feet, and they drove away before they finally had the courage to come inside. Okay? All right, let's move on. <clears throat> and some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. 
Now you have to understand something about the primitive plow. It was usually made out of a piece of timber, an old log that had a crook on the end of it, and it was usually drawn by an ox, and it only scuffed up the earth a couple inches deep. So it would cut off the, 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 uh, the, the brambles and the briars, but it did not uproot, did not take up the roots. So it was only a matter of time till the roots came up again. Okay, and uh, so that's that was um, that was a problem. I'd like to suggest that this represents the careless, world-loving church. This is the church that lowers its standards, hoping that it will attract people out there by becoming more like them. Hey, man, that's what happened in the early church. <laughs> that that has precipitated the great apostasy. See, that, that never works, never works. All right, let's move on. But other seed fell on good ground and yielded a crop that sprang up, increased and produced some 30 fold, some 60 and some 100. And he said unto them, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is the faithful church. The Revelation 14, 12 church, keep the commandments of God, have the faith of Jesus. Now, here's the concept I want you to take home. It changed the whole way I thought about my congregation. Totally revolutionized my thinking, okay? Here it is. The Lord will guide you continually, Isaiah 58, 11. You shall be like a watered garden. We've had a little dry spell in Western Carolina the last few weeks, and we've been doing a little watering to try to keep our young plants alive, okay? But a well-watered garden is lush, beautiful. Um, and God's ideal for his church is that you be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Did not Jesus refer to that when he was talking to the woman at the well? When he said, the water that I will give you, you'll never thirst again, but it will be like a spring of water continuing to, to bring water out of the ground. I'm fortunate enough to have a flowing well on the mountain where we live. I have about three gallons of water that come out of the top of the well every minute. Truly fortunate. God wants us to be like that, see? That his, his presence in our lives is constantly flowing out to those about us, okay? Here's another statement. Jeremiah 31, 12. Therefore, they shall come and sing in the height of Zion. Their, shells, their souls shall be a well-watered garden. Okay? Now, from the book Evangelism, page 98 and 99. The church is his garden. Adorned with a variety of trees, plants, and flowers. In his spiritual garden, there are many varieties of flowers. 
we move on. The garden accommodates an infinite variety of plants. Think about that for a moment. And the different varieties fulfill different functions. They grow at different stages, different rates of growth and maturity. And God plants each seedling in your garden. So now, let's just pause for a moment and think about that concept. I saw my congregation then as a garden. I had, as we will see later, I had some ever-fragrant flowers. I had tall oaks. I had radishes that were coming up through the ground. <laughs> see? Each of us are a plant in that garden. And so the way I ministered to them was much different after I discovered this principle than before. Let's move on. Oh, this is a good one. From the endless variety of plants and flowers, we may learn what kind of a lesson? An important lesson. All blossoms are not the same in form or color. Some possess healing virtues, some always fragrant. There are professing Christians who think it their duty to make every other Christian like themselves. Whose plan is that? She says it's man's plan, not God's. I, um, I have uh, characterized these people as my good little housekeepers. You have got to understand that when you're growing a garden, you have all a tremendous variety of plants. They're all growing at different stages. They all have a particular role to play, and God plants every one of them in your garden. He does that because he knows you need them. You need their gift mix. You need their spiritual fervor and strength. You need their energy. You need their wisdom. God puts them there for a reason. But we have our little tidy housekeepers. <laughs> Look, a growing church is a church that has a certain amount of clutter in it because the plants are all growing at different stages, all right? She says, as we move on, oh, no, I want to finish this statement. In the church of God, there is room. Did you catch that? There is room for characters. I'm glad she said that, because that can include me. Okay? There's room for characters as varied as are the flowers of the garden. Now, before I move on to this next section, I want to talk about these housekeepers for just a, a moment. 
these tidy housekeepers will sweep the church if they have an opportunity to do so, they'll sweep evil right out. Because they, they have difficulty in tolerating the clutter. But if you understand that you have a crop that is growing continually, and they're all moving toward maturity, some are not going to be as far along as others, you'll have people who are simply interests. Doesn't mean that you're going to baptize them at, at you know, the early stage. You're going, to, you're going to carefully prepare them before you baptize them, okay? But you've got to remember that you've got to have little seedlings in the ground growing all the time. If you don't have those little seedlings, you're never going to have a crop. Okay? In fact, Solomon said, the sluggard will not plow because of the cold, and in the winter he will beg. See, So if you're going to have a crop, and these silent teachers have an important lesson to teach to us, if you're going to have a crop, then you've got to have little seedlings growing in your garden. You, you, you will see your congregation as made up of plants that are at all stages of growth, and you're only waiting for them to mature and be, begin to produce fruit, and then it's time to harvest. See? Okay? So, endure the clutter. You're going to have a certain amount of it. Even brand new Adventists take some time to settle in. You know that? Takes a little time for them to settle in. They'll stub their toes here and there. And you've got to be willing to, you know, tolerate that, be gracious to that, provide encouragement so that that plant continues to grow. Because someday there'll be a fruit producing plant. This is why this revolutionized the way I thought about church growth. The wayside, now notice this, this is really mind-boggling. The wayside, the stony ground, the thorny ground hearers need not remain such. The garden of the heart must be cultivated. The soil must be broken up by deep repentance for sin. Poisonous satanic plants must be uprooted. The soil, once overgrown, by thorns can be reclaimed only by diligent effort. You know, that gives me hope. If you have a traditional church that is stuck in a rut, that ground can be changed. See? The, the cold, unaccepting congregation, like the stony ground, that can be changed. All of them can be changed. But it takes diligent labor in the love of Jesus to accomplish it. Have you ever thought of it this way, that the soil conditions determine the outcomes? Only, there were four soil conditions, but only one produced.
a crop. So if you're, you know, if you're in the traditional rut, if you're in the cold, clammy rut, <laughs> if you're in the world-loving rut, you've got work to do to change your soil. Because there's only one, one section of that garden that produced a crop. Now, <clears throat> it's important for us to understand the important elements that have to be in the soil of a church for your plants to grow. Um, and um, these are some of the conditions, these are some of the things that God has given us to do. See? Actually, we only putter around with the soil. That's all we do. We putter around with it. We fertilize it, we water it, we cultivate it. You know, we do those kind of things to encourage the plants to grow. But we can't make them grow. But we can help to provide the environment in which they can grow. So if you're going to have a garden that has good, rich soil, the one thing for sure that you have to have is a strong biblical teaching ministry in your church. That includes your pulpit. Brother Alden was talking about that this morning. The Word of God has to be paramount in the life of your church if it's going to grow. And not just, you know, cherry-pick the gospel and, 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 and put in the background those things that are more difficult, what we call testing truths. You can't do that if you want to grow, if you want to grow healthy plants. Now, you can grow without doing that. You, can, you, you know, you can fill a church if you want to. You can, you can fill it by putting all those in the background. You're going to have weak, sickly plants in your garden. Okay. That's one thing you have to have in the soil. Here's another thing. You have to have an understanding of mission. You heard these men this week. I've been sitting here listening to them talking about the importance of us understanding our mission as a church. One of our problems is that we have begun to forget who we are and what we're about, and how God has chosen us to proclaim his last warning message to the world. We have forgotten that. Many of us, anyway, have forgotten it. Not, I, I know I'm talking to the choir here. <laughs> but as we go back to our churches, we know that there are many there that have very faint idea of what this church is all about, have a very sketchy idea of the miraculous nature in which the Adventist church came into being, the prophetic significance of this church. We must have an understanding of our mission. That has to be part of our soil. Bridging ministries, that's what I'll be talking to you about tomorrow. Bridging ministries open up doors to the community. It creates friends in the community. It, 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 it um, um, what's the word? I'm having a senior moment. What's that? Interconnects. Yeah, it interconnects with the community, but it also breaks down prejudice. See? And there's a lot out there. I mean, I'll be talking about this tomorrow morning. It's interesting, some of the things people in the community think Adventists are about. See? 
So how do you, how do you, you see, how do you nullify that? How do you turn that around? See, because you have no, you have no possibility of reaching that, that person until you have taken care of this idea, this, this prejudice that's out there. And some of us really live, Jack knows this, those of us who live in the Bible Belt, <laughs> we know that there's a lot out there, you know. And so we have a, we have a tremendous challenge to change the thinking in the community. You do that through bridging ministries. Um, and bridging ministries complement public evangelism. I'm losing track of time here. Um, Uh, I'm one who believes that you build your own crowd. We just finished a evangelistic campaign in our church. Our, by the way, for the benefit of all of you here, our pastor's a watchman. Praise God. <laughs> Every week we're fed from the Word of God. And what a joy and a privilege and a, and a, that is to have that kind of a teaching pulpit in your church. But um, I think we sent out something over, we don't have a large community, about 10,000 10, handbills. They drew about 40, 40 some people the first night. That's about average. And by the end of the first week or two, that was down to about half of that. You know how that goes. Look, and that costs lots of money. I read someplace, well, I, I, I won't quote it because I'm not sure of the figure, but it was astronomical how much it costs to, to evangelize and baptize a single person now in public evangelism. It's out of sight. Bridging ministries <laughs> complement public evangelism because they create, they create the potential. They create your friends in the community who are more likely to come. And not only that, but people will pay for, to come to your bridging events. You can do an awful lot of evangelism in bridging ministries, and people are happy to pay for those events. It's a winner. <laughs> yes. I'll be talking about that tomorrow morning. That's the icing that I talked about earlier today. Uh, we're setting the table right now, and we're taking the main meal right now. We're, you know, we're talking about the, the philosophy, the biblical philosophy and basis and foundation for this. Tomorrow morning, we, we take it from there, and we begin to, and, and I know your minds are just going to go, you know, your minds are going to go bananas tomorrow morning, because you're going to be, as I hand this sheet to you, you're going to be looking down here and say, man, I could do this. I could do this. How do I go about doing that? I hope to explain that to you in the morning. Okay? All right, let's move on. You must have a soul-winning Sabbath school. Is your, is your Sabbath school winning souls? Is your Sabbath school alive? <laughs> That's a whole other seminar. But... I can tell you that there is a way of developing a soul-winning Sabbath school that will reach out into your community. It will bring revival and reformation to your own members. 
and it will give you the opportunity of reaching out into your community and evangelizing them through Sabbath school. I can't talk about that today. It's gotta, you gotta have it. Um, a welcoming, nurturing, embracing membership. This is where the good news of the gospel is revealed through you. And um, people who come feel welcome. They feel embraced and nurtured. And they're more likely to come back when they feel that way. Uh, effective men's and women's ministries. About three years ago, three other fellows and myself created a men's ministry that is a dynamic, active ministry in our church. One of the key things that drove us to that, or at least led us to that, was the recapturing of God's role for men in their families, in their churches, and in the community. We're active in the community. We are active among our elderly in the church and are handicapped. We do for things for them that they cannot do. We do the same for people in the community when we know of a need. You have to have a good, active men's ministry. Men are doers. They're hands-on people. They're not inclined to sit around in circles and <laughs> talk about relationships and that kind of thing, as important as relationships are. Men's are ha men are hands-on people. And um, that's the kind of men's ministry we've developed. We call it Sabbath Covenant Fellowship. Men's Fellowship, Sabbath Covenant Men's Fellowship, based on the covenant with God, Sabbath Covenant with God, and becoming the men that God wants us to be. Greatest one of the world is the one of men, etc., etc., etc. That's what we based it on. Women's ministries also can be a very vital a part of your soil. Hospitality ministries, very important uh, to have people who um, are have especially the gift of hospitality that can welcome the guest, take them home, make friends of them after the service on Sabbath. Um, that's one of the things you have to have in your soil if your plants are going to grow and be strong and healthy. Now, we take another look at this parable from a different perspective. The degrees of receptivity and how we react to them. The wayside represents the unbelieving world. Number one, they are spiritually paralyzed. Number two, they see no need of God. And number three, they sense no danger. And then we see them. This is how we see them. They are not tillable. <laughs> the soil is hard. The, the seed seems to bounce off of them. Okay? They are a waste of time. 
any seed they receive from us is by accident. <laughs> I mean, it just happens to fall there, see? Not something that we've intentionally done. The next, the next um, portion of ground, the stony ground here, he's fascinated with the gospel, as Jesus pointed out in the parable, as he explained it later to his disciples. They're fascinated with the theory of the gospel, but they're unconverted. Um, he's selfish, self-centered. His, self, his selfish, self-centered nature is like rock lying under the soil. It's superficial. His experience is very superficial and shallow, although he's fascinated with the gospel. Our evaluation of him is, he's promising, but his spasmodic experience is exasperating to us. And so after an initial attempt or two, we abandoned him. I failed to get the rest of that on the screen. Thorny ground hearers, they're openly worldly. Uh, an openly worldly Christian, in fact. Thorns have been cut, but the roots have not been uprooted. He's materialistic, pleasure-loving. How do we look at him? They create too many problems. <laughs> See? We don't have the time or the energy to invest, so we avoid them. You see, the method that I am sharing with you takes time. Just think of your garden. When you buy the pack of seeds and you look on the back of it, it says how many days it's going to take for that seed to come to maturity once you put it in the ground. And you can water it and you can fertilize it and you can, you can cultivate it till you're blue in the face, but it's not, going to, it's not going to mature any earlier than that. In fact, you can even kill it with too much attention, with the wrong kind of attention. Hmm? Sure you can. See? And this is the reason that this method does not attract most churches and even church leaders, is because it takes time. I was sharing this with a colleague of mine out in California. We were at a meeting together out there some years ago. And we were eating breakfast together, and I was sharing with him some of the concepts. He said, Don, I think what you're telling me is that radishes you can have in a few weeks, but oak trees take a little more time. I said, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. Now, we need the radishes. These are the people that come to us who have already pretty well read themselves into the, into the message. They may have had friends that have shared things with them. And they're, they're, they're ready to be, almost ready to be reaped by the time we meet them. We need the radishes. But we've got tomatoes. We've got corn. We've got all kinds of flowers. We've got trees and brushes, bushes and shrubs. And they're all growing at different rates. We have to be patient. We know that the oak tree is going to take a little longer. See? Do we have the patience to bear with them? See? What we do is we tend to think, well, it's too much trouble. It's too time-consuming. We don't have the time. So we just, uh, you know, we ignore them. Good ground here is they're honest and sincere. They welcome truth. They've surrendered. They've surrendered themselves to God's will. And this is the way we see them. Oh, he's our kind of person. We relate easily, and <laughs> he takes minimal investment in time, 
and effort. So we gravitate to those, and we generally tend to screen out the others. Where God is saying, hey, look, you've got a garden. You can't expect the oak tree to grow at the rate of a tomato plant. <laughs> you just got to wait. Just recognize he's going to take longer. He's in your garden. Be patient with him. Encourage them. Nurture them. Eventually, they'll become a great, you know, they'll be a, a great uh, influence for good in your congregation. Now we move to the next parable, and we'll try to go through this more quickly. He said, the kingdom of God is that if a man should scatter seed on the ground and should sleep by night and rise by day, and the seed should sprout and grow, he does not himself know how. Uh, the earth yields crops by itself, that's God's work, first the blade, then the head, and after that the full grain in the head. But when the grain ripens, immediately he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And so the good gardener is constantly watching all of his plants as he's tending them. He's watching them come to maturity, and when they do, immediately he puts in the harvest. But he doesn't harvest the whole garden at once. That is why God gave us a garden model, not a commercial model. Now these guys across the road over here, they may reap hundreds of acres at a time. And when they reap those hundreds of acres, some of the grain, is, some of the corn is overripe, some of it is just right, some of it is not ripe enough. See? And if you, if you reap your garden in that fashion, you're going to have difficulty. Okay? God gave us a garden model. You pick the fruit as it matures, and you watch all the plants in the garden. You give them all individual care. Hey, you don't give every plant the same, same kind of care, do you? You have to string the beans. <laughs> you have to hoe the potatoes. You have different things you do for the various plants. So ministry of the church has to be multifaceted. It has to be specifically and, and, and intentionally directed toward each plant so that you encourage it to grow and mature. I told you this revolutionized the way I thought about it. The seed. Now look. You know, God doesn't think as we do. <laughs> He's given us seed to plant. Have you ever looked at a seed? You look at the seed, what do you see? You don't see much. Very unpretentious. Hmm? You have no idea from looking at the surface of the seed of the power that is in it. That's the way with the gospel. Jesus said that the seed was the gospel. It's simple, unpretentious, but powerful. Germination is unobserved by us. The growth takes place beneath the ground. A few days ago, I dropped a few seeds in my garden, covered them, left them, knowing that I couldn't do anything about it now. It's all in God's hands. When I get home, I hope to see the little seedlings popping through the surface. Okay? That's him. See, germination 
growth is unobserved by us. That's God's part. The tender plant, the sprouting root, illustrate the miraculous nature of the coming Messiah and the growth of his kingdom. God's ways. Again, this is a, this author in the recent ministry magazine. She's talking about the seed. God's ways of bringing his kingdom are more mysterious than we can know. Our duty is not to fathom these ways, but to be obedient to what the Lord tells us to do. In the context of Mark's parable, obedience would lead us to plant good seed and then be at peace. Let God do his part. Don't try to do it for him. Encourage the plants, cultivate them, water them, do whatever you need to do to them, to encourage them to grow. But you can't cause them to grow one inch. Jesus said you can't add one inch to your stature. See, that's his part, not ours. Okay, this is a good statement. Robert Coleman, <clears throat> in his book, The Master Plan of Evangelism, just a little teeny book, says this. This is our problem of methodology today. Well-intentioned ceremonies, programs, organizations, commissions, and crusades of human ingenuity are trying valiantly to do a job that can only be done by men in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now notice how that harmonizes what the servant of God said so many, many years ago. There is great necessity for us to realize our dependence on God. Too much confidence is placed in man. Too much reliance on human inventions. There is too little confidence in the power which God stands ready to give. There are three segments to the agricultural cycle. There's the preparation of the soil, that's our part to do. Then the maturation period, that's when the plants are growing into maturity, that's God's work primarily to do. And then the harvest and preser preservation of the harvest, which I'll talk to you a little bit about in the morning, is ours. It's like a three-legged stool. Three-legged stool can't stand on one leg. That's why, that's why Solomon said the man who refuses to plow because of the cold is going to beg in the harvest. When I was a boy, I sat on a three-legged stool every morning and night milking a cow. <laughs> I still have the stool, by the way. Still have the bucket. Still have the butter churn. Still have the strainer, we used to strain it through. That, that stool had three legs on it. Took all three legs to stand up. That's the way it is with the agriculture cycle. You cannot afford to ignore any one of these cycles. If you do, you will not have a crop when it comes time to harvest. This is our work, we put around with the soil. Ellen White says, the sores of the seed have a work to do in preparing hearts to receive the gospel. 
In Christ-like sympathy, we should come close to men individually and seek to awaken their interest in the great things of eternal life. You see, she says we must come to them individually. This is not a mass farming model, a commercial model. This is a garden model in which every plant in the garden gets individual attention and care. Okay? Notice what she continues to say here in Christ's Object Lessons, page 57. Their hearts may be as hard as the beaten highway, and apparently it may be useless effort to present the Savior to them. But while logic may fail to move, an argument be powerless to convince the love of Christ revealed in, the personal, in personal ministry may soften the stony heart so that the seed of truth can take root. Maturation period. James says, therefore be patient, brother, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth. That's the hardest part of this. <laughs> you plant the seed. Any of you ever done this? You plant the seed, you go out every day to see if it's coming up. <laughs> and you just can't wait. You just can't wait. You wish you could do something. Get that seed out of the ground. It's going to take a certain amount of time to come out of there. You know, you can't do a thing about it. And that, you see, that just mitigates against, you know, our tendency to control and, and to engineer and, and to, you know, do this thing on our own. We have a role to play. But God has his. We have to let him we have to let him uh, work in his area. Waiting patiently and f for until it receives the early and latter rain, you also be patient, establishing your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. Here's one, here's a statement that's powerful. The husbandman worketh. If he does not plow and clean and smooth his soil, and cast in the living seeds in their season, he will have no waiting work to do and nothing to wait for. Wow. It is not sufficiently impressed upon us in moral and spiritual fears, spheres that only workers can be waiters. If a man has not worked, what has he to wait for? What has he to wait about? In all true waiting, there is expectancy. But expectancy must be based upon something. The husbandman bases it upon his work, waiting that has no work behind it and no work in it is dreamy sentiment and is no good to anybody. Now we move to the harvest, this, this last phase, and then we're soon done. Two phases of the harvest. There are two phases, sometimes we don't think about it, but there's gathering and preserving. Pickling, uh, picking only ripened fruit. Ellen White talked about this. See, it's a garden, not a commercial model. Let's move on here quickly. She had a dream, which they were going on a berry picking ex expedition, and she records it in Gospel Workers, beginning page 136. I began to gather the fruit nearby, but very carefully for fear of picking what? The green berries. <laughs> we don't pick green berries. We shouldn't. She said, 
I was very careful not to pick any of the green berries. She knew that they would ripen. She'd come back and get them later, see? Which were so mingled with the ripe fruit that I could pick only one or two berries from the cluster. We dehydrate, we can, we freeze, we pickle. I'll talk about that more tomorrow. Then I said, same, same dream. Will you take care of these berries? These were the other people that were with her. And then go with me to look for more fruit on the high bushes. But they had made not preparation to care for the fruit. I became tired of waiting and finally asked, did you not come to gather fruit? Then why are you not prepared to take care of it? See, once you've harvested it, you have got to preserve it. You've got to pickle it. You've got to dry it. You've got to freeze it. If you bring the fruit in on the, on the back porch and you don't do any of that, it's no good to you. You'll, you'll lose it. That's why it'll go out the back door. See? Look. My idea of what constitutes successful evangelism is this. It's not how many people you baptize at the end of a series. That gets all of the attention, gets all of the ink. It's how many you have left at the end of the first year. If you have most of the people there, at the end of the first year, you're doing evangelism, all right. My ministry, I was never on top of the totals at the end of the year, never, never there. But I can tell you, when we began to implement this program, at the end of the year, I baptized 20, 25 people, 30 sometimes. I had more left at the end of the first year than those that baptized 100 and more. See, if you baptize that many and they go out the back door, either because you're picking them green and they spoil on you, or you wait too late, see, you're not like, you, see, the farmer, when, when the thing, when, when, when the plant matures, immediately he puts in the sickle. See, it's a, lot, a lot has to do with timing. And if you don't do that, um, you're going to have spoilage, lots of it. Okay. Oh, we come right to the end. This is our last slide. This gives us encouragement. This is the third parable of the mustard seed. You're acquainted with it. What is it saying to us? Mustard seed is how big? <laughs> it's the most unpromising of all seeds. But when it has matured, it houses the birds of the air. Hmm? Now, be of good courage. What God is saying is, you may think that this plan of mine is has little potential. But if you will be faithful and tend to your garden, you'll have the birds resting 
in the branches of the mustard plant. Now let me apply it another way. thought about it this morning. This little camp meeting has been a blessing to my wife and I this week. Our numbers have not been large. Bigger today. We know a lot of people work. Couldn't be here. Hopefully this is not the last one. God is saying to you, your beginning may be small, but if you will be faithful, it'll grow like the mustard plant. And next year, as the word gets around, there'll be more people here. And the year after that, more people here. No, that's right. May that be your experience. God bless you. It's been, it's been good meeting with you today. Tomorrow we're going to have a good time. Because tomorrow we talk about practice, not, not theory, but practice tomorrow, okay? Let's have prayer together. Father in heaven, you have given us the plan. Help us to tend our gardens faithfully. So as the crops are growing, as you continue to add new seedlings to the soil, that we will have a rich harvest for your kingdom. Thank you for hearing our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.